we want you to use your gift. We want you to be an active participant in the body of Christ in the church. Romans 12. So here we are in our series going through the book of Romans, walking through verse by verse, understanding uh, really this book is a, it's the best example of as a Christian, what do I believe? This is, you know, the Holy Spirit uses Paul to basically write that down here in the book of Romans. And he spent the first 11 chapters of this book really discussing the big thing, salvation, right? It's, you know, God exists and the ramifications of that in chapter one, for those of us who reject that obvious knowledge that God exists, what that will lead to in a nation when people reject it. And then you have this understanding of all people have sin. Now, we've all might recognize or not recognize whether or not God exists, but within our own hearts, we have determined the moral law and we understand that the moral law exists, yet, even though we create our own personal standards, we don't even live up to our own standards. We're hypocrites when we judge others who do things that we ourselves do. And so how do we hope to live up to God's law if we don't even live up to our own standards? And yet it's pointed out to us in Romans 3, we are all sinners. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And so the problem is set. God exists. God judges the wicked. We're all wicked. What do we do? And so then we go into this understanding of grace and what it means through the rest of up to chapter 11. Now it's this idea of grace through faith alone. That is how you are saved. You are saved by faith through grace alone by your belief in Jesus Christ. And then the last three chapters that we really went through, chapters 9, 10, 11, were a response that Paul is writing down to those who don't understand what he's saying, that salvation comes by belief in Christ, by the grace of God through faith alone, because there was a group of people that the church was mostly made up of in the first century, because the gospel went to the Jews first before the Gentiles, who said, wait, we're God's chosen people. We're the Israelites. The Israelites have been set apart among the world. We've taken care of scripture. How is it that we're not saved just by our sheer election of being God's chosen people, just by our birthright, because we're descendants of Abraham? And Paul points out, yes, there's no difference in salvation between Jew or Gentile. You are saved by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ. And that is the summary of the first 11 chapters for all people, and then specifically addressing this issue with the Jews of, no, you're not saved by your birthright by being descendants of Abraham. Yes, there are still covenant promises to you. That still has a plan for you. But salvation, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. So after this long discussion, trying to understand this idea of grace through faith alone and how God saved us, how Jesus took the punishment of our sin, paid for it, paid our debt on the cross. And it's 
up to us. We accept that. We believe it. We give ourselves over to Christ, and then we are saved. Then what do we do? That's what the rest of Romans is about. So that's where we pick up in Romans chapter 12. So buckle up because it's going to be a bumpy ride. Romans 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. We're going to be on this one for a while. Okay, we're one verse in, and be prepared to stay there for a bit. Because right away, as Paul finishes up his understanding of salvation and what it means, then he says, next, I urge you, beseech you, or urge you, or I encourage you, I motivate you, I come alongside you and hope that you will understand what you should do. That's why he says, I beseech you. Therefore is a call to action. I'm urging you, therefore, here is your call to action. Here's what you do because you're saved by grace. This is what you do, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. He's saying, offer up yourselves as a living sacrifice to God. What does this mean? Well, Leviticus is the book of the law. It's the book of the Levite law. It's the law of Moses. It's written down, and we have the understanding of each sacrifice. And Leviticus opens up with the burnt offering. Leviticus chapter 1 is about the burnt offering. A burnt offering is when you bring an animal to be sacrificed at the temple that you give over to God. But normally, in a lot of the other sacrifices, when the animal is prepared for sacrifice, some of the animal, like usually the fat, gets burnt up and the blood is drained. Um, but some of that meat goes to the priests. And Sometimes some of the meat goes to you, for instance, in a fellowship offering, because what you're saying is I'm offering this up to God, but you're communing with God because you've offered a meal to God that you're sharing with him. But a burnt offering is different. None of the meat goes to you. None of the meat goes to the priests. It's all wholly consumed by the fire in the, under the bronze altar. It's completely consumed. And so what Paul is saying here is be prepared to wholly consume yourself by the fire of the Holy Spirit. Give yourself up completely to Jesus, to his service. He completely saved you, so submit completely to his authority as a living sacrifice. It's interesting that he put living in there because it's true. We are living. We're not getting burned by fire. We're not dead. So the problem with us is that we're in the flesh and we might offer ourselves up. We might want to follow God completely and completely submit to his authority. But as Paul has already spent a chapter talking about before in Romans 7, is that we're in this war between flesh and spirit. Our flesh desires what the world desires. Our spirit desires what God wants. And so as a living sacrifice, you're com continually submitting yourself to the altar of God, to be under his authority. But as a living sacrifice, you are probably going to wiggle. 
But that's the point of offering yourself up, presenting your body, presenting this vessel where the Holy Spirit can dwell that allows you to do the ministry that God has called you to do. You offer your body up to take care of it, to do what God has asked you to do, uh, and it will be difficult. There will be times you don't want to get out of bed. There will be times you are tempted to do what the flesh wants, but you submit to the authority of God to offer yourself up as a living sacrifice. So that's verse 1. Verse 2 may be my favorite sentence in all of Scripture. And do not be conformed to this world. I love that because I'm kind of an odd guy. So I love that I don't have to conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable and and perfect will of God. So in the second verse, you have this, after you submit yourself to God, part of that is no longer conforming to the world, no longer being shaped by culture or its ideas or whatever the world is pushing on you. Instead, you become transformed by what God is doing through you. Be transformed by the Holy Spirit. Be transformed by your fellowship with other believers. Be transformed, most importantly, by the one thing we absolutely know is what God says, his word, the scripture. Allow that to permeate and penetrate through you so that your moral compass and your decisions can be made through what you know about God rather than what the world says is good. Be transformed. Do not conform to this world. Do not be subject to the culture. Do not be subject to the media. Do not be subject to academia. Instead, subject yourself completely as a living sacrifice to the one who saved you. Let him change you so that you can test his will and find out that it is good and perfect because God knows what is best. He is fully sovereign. For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Now, this is the first half of verse 3, but I love it because the point is don't be proud. After Paul talks about submitting yourself as a living sacrifice and not conforming to the world, but submitting to Jesus and being renewed by the Spirit and allowing the the Word of God to change you, that the grace given to you, everyone who is among you, not to think of yourself too highly. Don't get too proud with what God does with you. When someone comes up to you and says, that really helped me. I really learned because of what you said or did, or this changed my life. Thank you. Don't get too proud of yourself because God used you. All the glory goes to him. Don't think higher of yourself because God used you. That's like a a hammer being proud of itself because of how the carpenter used it. It doesn't make sense. You're the tool, not the artist. God is the carpenter. God is the potter. You're the clay or the tool that God is using in ministry, 
not to think too highly of yourself, but direct the praise where it belongs, to God. Don't think too highly of yourself, more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. This is important to remember because I think we often screw this up. Churches sometimes mess this up in general. There's a lot of different people. There's many members to the body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. We all have different roles. We don't have the same gifts. We don't have the same talents. We're not meant to do the same things. We're meant to work together to accomplish God's ministry. So don't think that one body part is more important than another. It's not. It says, in one, uh, has many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. So we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then gifts different according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. So now Paul is going to go through different, some of the different gifts, not a complete list, but some of the different gifts that the Spirit gives us when we believe in the Son. When we believe in the resurrection and put our faith in Christ and give ourselves over to him, the Spirit will give you gifts to use for the gospel to point people back to God. What is your gift and how are you using it? He's saying... First of all, don't let any, don't, the church shouldn't prevent people from using their gift. So you shouldn't look at some gifts as more important than others because we need all of the gifts to function. And so let us use them. So if your gift is prophecy, let us prophesy. Now I want to say this importantly because I think we have a misunderstanding of prophecy. Now, in the Old Testament, the prophets foretold a lot of things. They predicted the future and they wrote down scripture and God's word. That's part of what happened to the prophets. That's part of the gift of prophecy, but that's not the main role of what a prophet does. If you read through the prophets, their main role was not to tell the future. That's like a side thing that they did in part of their writing that they might not have even been aware of some of what they were telling as they were writing down what God told them to write. Their main goal, their main role in ministry as a prophet is to correct. They spent time correcting a insubordinate culture that was rejecting God's law and acting immorally and calling them out to repentance. Every prophet did this. This is the main role of a prophet. So if there is a prophet on TV telling you about how you're going to be blessed if you give them money, and they're going to predict things for you and give you ideas or send you a handkerchief or something, uh, they're lying to you. Because if their goal, if their main point in ministry is not to actually point out the immorality in culture and ask people to subject themselves back to the moral code that God has given, then they're not a prophet because that's the main role of a prophet. The other stuff is secondary or tertiary. So, if you're a prophet, do it well and do it right. Moving on. Or ministry. Let us use it in our ministering. Now, this the word ministry here is the same Greek word that's used for deacon. It, it means practical help. 
So this is also something I think the church needs to do a better job at in general, as a lot of churches hire the pastor or elders to be deacons. And interestingly, uh, in the book of Acts, you have this fight going on because some of the people were not being, or say they're not being taken care of as well as some of the others, and they require help and assistance. And so what the disciples do is they appoint deacons to take care of the people and to do the practical things that are absolutely needed for the church to function, but they appoint people to it so that the apostles can themselves spend time working on teaching and preaching the gospel while someone else is doing the practical work. Because that is absolutely needed. Sometimes things don't go well for members of the body. Sometimes people need a little extra financial help. Sometimes people get hurt and they might need rides somewhere or something like that. And deacons are the ones, the practical help to make sure people have their needs met so they can, they can continue their life and continue coming to the church and experiencing uh, building themselves up and understanding the word of God better. That is the practical help, the ministry that deacons do. Thankfully, we have people here who do that. Now, here's my favorite one, and I think you're going to know why. He who teaches in teaching. So teachers should teach. Now, I also think that a lot of times churches get this wrong. I'm glad that I don't think we've gotten this one wrong, but I think there's a real lack of teaching in the Western church. We've hired pastors to be entertaining. We've hired pastors to do all kinds of jobs that nobody else wants to do. But rarely do we often hire pastors to do what they are supposed to do, which is teaching and preaching the word of God. This for me is honestly my main gift. I understand personally this is where I excel, or at least I think I do. And this is where I like to hang out because it's what God has gifted me with. Now, it's not because I'm great, because I'm not. It's God has gifted me, and there is something supernatural when I open up Scripture that God is feeding me. And it's my job to take the text and give it to you in a way that makes it understandable. That's what a teacher does. Help build you up and give you the knowledge of what the text says so that you can understand the revelation of God better. That's what a teacher does. If those are meant to be teachers, teach. If you're meant to be a deacon and do practical help so that you can help people continue in their life when things aren't going great, or even if they are, just to keep encouraging people and you need practical help, then be a deacon. If you are someone who's meant to call out the world of their immorality and bring them back to the standard that God upholds, then be a prophet. If you are someone who exhorts, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, and he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. So if you are someone who exhorts, meaning you encourage or motivate people to do the ministry of God, that's exhortation. That's like preaching. Do that. If you're someone who gives freely, if you're someone who is blessed, and it gives joy to you to make sure that the ministry can function because you've been blessed financially, 
then do that, but do it with joy and freely, not for praise. He who leads with diligence, or really what that means is he who is good at administration, do that. Help things function. If you're a type A personality and you help make lists and you help things be in order, do that so that the ministry can function without being sloppy. If you are someone who is good, who shows mercy, do it with cheerfulness. Um, this one I don't quite understand. Um, just because if you've spent any time around me, you know that mercy is not my main spiritual gift or one that I have at all. Um, I feel bad. Lindsay has known me for a very long time. We grew up together, and if she tells me something uh, going on in her life, she fully expects me to be as rash and crude and mean as possible about how wrong she is and how she should fix that because uh, I have trouble relaying information with mercy. It's not my gift. I understand mercy, and I'm thankful for God's mercy. There's just something in my bones that doesn't make me the person to talk to when you need a shoulder to cry on. So we desperately need those people here. Are you one of those people? How can you be one of those people to help the ministry do what it should do. So basically the point is here in this little section is we are the body of Christ. We don't all have the same function. We don't all serve the same role, but we serve the same God. And we all come together to point to him and to serve him properly so that the needs of the body are met and the gospel can be spread. So do you have a gift? You should. How are you using it? Think about that. Bring those ideas with you because we want you to use your gift. We want you to be an active participant in the body of Christ in the church. Verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. What he's really saying, the word hypocrisy means to wear a mask. It's what actors would do in Greek culture or Roman culture. If they had a mask that had a sad face, they'd put it in front of their face and pretend to be sad. So it's even though it might look that way on the outside, it doesn't match what's going on spiritually. So if you're loving someone, don't do it as though you're wearing a mask. Don't fake it. Your love to the other believers, to your brothers and sisters, should be real. You should have legitimate empathy for what someone else is going through when you're loving them. When you care for another brother or sister, you should be as excited as they are to see someone come to faith in Christ. It shouldn't be a mask that you put on. It should be authentic and real. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor, giving preference to one another. Love one another like a family. That's what the church should be doing because 
We all have the same father. We've been adopted into the same heavenly family. And so we should be looking forward to help one another and to love one another as brothers. Now, good thing about being brothers is that you're not necessarily going to like everybody, but you do love them. So you might not get along with every single person, uh, but you should love them and look forward to their success and want to encourage it and make it happen. Now, verse 11, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. So this is real practical stuff, right? Paul is telling us, love without being fake. Let it penetrate your heart. Let it be real. Let what God did to you penetrate your heart so that you can love like he loves. Be kind and affectionate. Love one another as a family because they are believers too. They've been adopted into the same heavenly family. Uh, and then it says, be fervent in, in spirit. Don't lag in diligence, right? Uh, don't be slothful. This is where the administrators come in. If you're an administrator, help us. Be proactive about helping one another out or loving one another. But be fervent in spirit. The word fervent is literally translated to boil. To, if you know anything about, if you've ever cooked macaroni and cheese, you've experienced what boiling water looks like. It's heat that produces useful energy. If God has changed you, let that heat you up from the inside out so that it produces useful energy for the gospel to be spread, for the ministry to be done. If you are, have an ounce of understanding of what was done at the cross, that should melt your heart to boil and give you useful energy that other people need to know what the sacrifice of Christ was for, because they don't have to live a life without meaning. They don't have to live a life without purpose. They don't have to live a life in sin, subject to sin, as a slave to sin, because you can be freed from it and be given eternal life. If you understand that at all, it should bring your heart to a boil and give you the energy that is useful and proactive. Don't be slothful. Use that energy. Use the energy that the Spirit is giving you to produce the ministry that saves people. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation. Nobody likes to hear that part. Continuing steadfastly in prayer. Now, we do have a small prayer team. If you would like to join that, if that is one of the gifts that you have, if that is something that you have a heart for, praying for those in need, taking the prayer requests, and praying for them diligently, and praying for the church, and praying for the gospel to be spread in this area through us. If you would like to be a part of that prayer team, fill out one of those response cards. Tell us you can join the prayer team. We need all the prayer we can get. It says continue steadfastly in prayer. We need prayer warriors because we do not fight against battles of flesh and blood, but against principalities and darkness. We need your prayer. Distributing to the needs of the saints, giving to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Um, I can just imagine thinking of Paul writing that line. Bless those who persecute you if he had any clue what the internet would be like. Oh, Twitter. 
Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Now that's something I want to break down because it's difficult. When someone is going through a tough time, if you are there to provide empathy and a shoulder to cry on, weep with those who weep. I actually think that might be easier than the first one. Because a lot of us know what hurt feels like. It's easy to feel bad for someone when they're going through something you're not or something that you have gone through previously. It's good to be there for someone and to help them. I think of the book of Job when his, his friends just showed up and sat in silence. So it was easy to empathize with him for at least a little while. But to rejoice with those who are rejoicing, that actually takes a spirit of humility because it means you can't be envious when someone else succeeds where you haven't. I'll give you a little story about this. I have a, a friend, he's actually spoken here at the church once, um, named Brian. Now, Brian uh, is also an ordained minister. He's a youth pastor at another church, and uh, we started going to school for ministry at the same time. But prior to us going to college together uh, at the same time for ministry, um, I was trying to figure out how I wanted to get into ministry, how I was going to crack my way through into ministry. And I spent years basically mentoring and volunteering in youth ministries, thinking maybe I would go through the individual church program um, set up through the denomination to get ordained by the denomination. But then I thought, do I really want to be connected solely to this denomination, or do I want to be able to go anywhere? Um, how do I do this? So it took me a while to go to college for ministry. While I was doing that, Brian was a student, and I was his youth leader. But then we started going to college for ministry at the same time. Since we started going for, to college uh, for ministry at the same time, this is our stories. I was working full-time in retail while also volunteering full-time at the church and then going to school full-time in my spare time, whatever of it existed, and paying for it with student loans that I'm still in debt for. Brian graduated high school, got a full scholarship <laughs> to Roberts Wesley, where he went to school for ministry without any debt because he got a full scholarship. When he graduated from college, he went directly to work for the first church he interviewed with as their youth pastor and still works for them now. Um, and things have gone pretty well for them. No debt, full scholarship, First job he interviewed for, for youth ministry, he got the job. I spent 10 years where he was working as a youth pastor trying to get a job in ministry. Let me remind you, I was once his youth leader and mentor, <laughs> and he had a job in ministry before I did. Um, in that moment, it was hard to rejoice with him because I knew what God had called me to. And I was watching somebody else on the same path as me getting there a whole lot quicker. And that was hard. 
But because I love him, and I knew he was also called to that, I was excited for him. But man, it was not easy to recognize that my schedule was not the same as his. And what God was calling me to was going to have to wait longer than him. It's not always easy to rejoice with people when they're rejoicing. Because the heart of the human in our flesh is often envious. This is part of giving yourself up as a living sacrifice. Submitting to the authority of God, knowing that God's timing is better than yours, and God's will is better than yours, and what he has done for someone as a blessing, you should be happy that God is blessing them because they're your brother or sister. Love them like family. Don't be envious. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. This is sort of repeating what he had already said about don't think too highly of yourself because God is the authority, not you. If you start praising yourself, it's easy to start disrespecting God because God is the one who saves us. God doesn't need us. We need him. It says, repay no one, for, no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. And important phrase, if it is possible, meaning it won't always be, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. So as a practical, how should you live as a Christian? You should seek to live peaceably with everybody as long as it doesn't mean you give up on your convictions or the truth. So if it's possible, live peaceably with them. Give good reasoning for why you believe what you believe and why they should come to faith in Christ. But don't give up on your convictions. Don't submit to the world. Don't conform to the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that is the standard of which you live by. And if it's possible to live by that standard, with the world, live peaceably. If not possible, you must stand in your conviction of giving yourself up as a living sacrifice. So if possible, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now that should be helpful to you because it's easy for us to want to pay someone back when they do us wrong. But we've already heard throughout this chapter the whole time of do not repay evil for evil. Bless those who curse you. Bless those who persecute you. Do not curse them, right? But God says, don't avenge yourself. It's not up to you to avenge the wrongdoing because God says it is up to him. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. So first of all, if there is wrongdoing to be done or that has been done and someone is going to be judged for it, your wrath will never be able to compare to what God's wrath can do. So be at peace. If somebody deserves something, God will give it to them. But we shouldn't be asking for it. What we should be hoping is that that person, person would actually repent of their sin and come to faith in Christ so that that wrath doesn't have to be thrown on them because Jesus has already taken the wrath of God on the cross. And you know what? 
whoever did wrong to you? Jesus died for them too. You were going to receive the same punishment as them. You've sinned just as much as they have. The only difference is Christ took the punishment for you. And you should be hoping that they come to saving faith and grace of Jesus Christ as well. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. So this is a quotation from the Old Testament, um, the book of Deuteronomy, I think. And uh, what Paul is really pointing out here is this it's commonly phrased in modern times as kill them with kindness. If someone is your enemy, but you don't retaliate, instead you show them love and sympathy and empathy. You take care of them and their need, even though they're horrible to you. All that's going to do is keep coals of fire on their heads. They're not going to understand it. They're not going to be able to wrap their head around it. Because, well... While we were yet enemies of God, Christ died for us. And so if we're meant to be called to be the representatives of Christ on earth to spread his message, while they're enemies of us, should we not die to ourselves and love them? Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So we go through chapter 12 and we understand this. This is ultimately boiling it down. What is Paul telling us? What has he written down for us to understand from the Holy Spirit? It's this. The world has a way of thinking and acting, and the world has agendas that it will push. Don't conform to them. Instead, submit yourself to the authority of the Word of God. And in doing so, you'll make yourself a living sacrifice by putting yourself on the altar and saying, God, I am yours. I am wholly consumed by you. Let me do your will. And every day, as a living sacrifice, it's not being consumed once. It's being consumed every day, every moment, every decision, and saying, in everything I'm doing, I am actively trying to submit to God's will because it's difficult in the flesh. Here's how I do it. I renew my mind by getting into the word rather than being subject to the world's ideas. I take the gifts that God has given me whatever that gift is, and I use it in the church to help the ministry of God expand in the world and in the region that I'm in so that the gospel can be spread by me using my gift. And then I take whatever opportunities of persecution that are thrown at me, if I can see that person or know them face to face, instead of retaliating, I say revenge is God's, but instead I will love that person and hope they come to faith in Christ. Because while I was an enemy of God, Christ died for me. I hope the same thing happens for them. So, don't conform to the world. Submit to God's authority. Use your spiritual gift to do the, the part of ministry you're meant to do so that the gospel can be spread. And don't repay evil with evil. Instead, love. Because while you were an enemy of God, enemy of God, Christ died for you. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for these words here that you gave Paul to write down. Help us to submit to them and understand them. Help us to live by them 
and to be a church that plugs people into the areas where they're gifted to do the things you've called us to do so that we can be a successful ministry reaching people for you. Because while the world is opposed to us and the message that you have, we were once enemies of yours too, but you died for us. Give us the opportunity to share the gospel with those you also died for who don't know you yet so that they can come to the saving faith by grace through the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.